Let's get started. So um, we're wrapping up today um, this year's identity series. Um, we've kind of been looking at biblical passages uh, that are set around a table. Um, that's kind of our namesake, where we got the name for our church, um, but also where we've got some of the, the our atmosphere, our ethos, what we want to be about. And it's been fun also to tell some stories about uh, the Esther's table. Um, which really kind of been the center of our lives for uh, 30 years. Um, in fact, Esther and I have this huge, gorgeous oak table, which is the first, and I think maybe still the only, like, brand new, full-price piece of furniture we have ever owned. Um, we're the kind of cast-off garage sale, you know, favorite marketplace type people. Um, I don't think we own hardly anything new. Um, but we knew that people don't generally like just give away or throw away a table big enough for our family. So we had to spend a small fortune to buy our table, and, uh, and it has been the center of our world ever since. We've eaten countless meals there. We've had Bible studies there. We've done marriage counseling there. We've done school there. Died Easter eggs there. We've assembled meals and gift bags and pieces of furniture on that table. Uh, we've had really tense family meetings, and we've played really crazy family games at that table. I've used it as saw horses and a sermon writing desk and a massage table when I went to massage school years ago. Uh, we've changed diapers on that table, we've changed insurance providers on that table, and we've changed our lives sitting at that table. And this is the metaphor that most closely... Uh, defines who we are um, as a family and, I think, who we want to be as a church. Um, in this series, we've studied a parable. Uh, we've looked at an Old Testament historical scene from the times of King David. And last week, we dealt with this kind of deeply theological text by Paul about the immense danger of excluding people from the table, including our kiddos. Oh, thank you, buddy. Man, God love you. <laughs> Drop the bottle. And this brings us to the final week of this year's identity series. I thought we'd wrap up by reading a scripture um, about another famous table uh, in the in the story of the Bible. And the text can be found in Exodus chapter 25. And I'm going to start in verse 23. If you're on your, if you're in your own Bible, if not, words will be on the screen. It reads, then make a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around the edges. Decorate it with a three-inch border all around and run a gold molding along the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them on the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Make special containers of pure gold for the table, bowls, ladles, pitchers, and jars to be used in the pouring out of liquid offerings. Place the bread of the presence on the table and remain uh, to remain for uh, me at all times. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and decorations of one piece. The base, the center stem, lamps and cups, buds and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center stem three on each side. For each of the six branches, we'll have three lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. Craft the center stem of the lampstand and four lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. 
there will be an uh, almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must come off the one piece of the center stem. They must be hammered, hammered from pure gold. Then make the seven lamps of the lampstand and set them where they can reflect the light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must be made out of pure gold. You'll need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lampstand and its accessories. Be sure to make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. So this is part of a large portion of the book of Exodus. And it looks uh, almost more like blueprints than, than a holy, sacred, moral text. God gave Moses this assignment to build a tabernacle, which is basically like a huge tent um, that's going to serve as a temple, but one that you could pack up and move around if you needed to as, as the nation moved from place to place. It's actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture because of this guy named Bezalel. Who, uh, uh, who is named in this passage and nowhere else. Um, as a contractor, um, I really dig this guy. He's one of my favorite people in the Bible. Here's how he's actually introduced the scripture. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur from the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. So far, this is the language we're used to, you know, in church. God filling someone with the Holy Spirit. No doubt to accomplish some supernatural task, like healing someone, or parting waters of seas, or calling down fire from heaven. But basically, we know that when the Spirit of God gets involved, something miraculous is about to happen, right? The crazy stuff is about to happen. Except, this is what it reads. I've given him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He's a master craftsman. Expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He's skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. So in this passage, God chooses this man named Bezalel and fills him with the Spirit of God to make him a good worker. The presence of God in the life of Bezalel makes him a better craftsman. So we so often associate the Spirit of God with crazy churchy stuff, but this passage leads us to believe that the Spirit of God makes us better people. Better moms, better dads, better construction workers, better school teachers, and nurses, and engineers, and on and on and on and on. And this portion of scripture here um, seems to be focused on construction. They're building something. They're making something. And God gives them blueprints for this tabernacle of exactly how to make it. Within that tabernacle, this table. Now this is unique here because um, all throughout the Bible, this idea of a temple is very important. I'm going to kind of steal from the Bible Project a little here. If you don't know them, you should look them up on YouTube. Um, but the Bible tells us that the entire earth was originally this place where humans met and walked with God. They communed together. We call it the Garden of Eden um, when we talk about it. It was where heaven and earth overlapped together. And earth ran and functioned according to the will of God. Where God got to de- decide what was good and evil. And, and the two were together. But when Adam and Eve uh, were given a choice of between living where God defines good and evil, and where they got to choose for themselves what was good and evil, they chose autonomy. And they chose to define good and evil for themselves, and this separation occurred between heaven and earth, between, between God and humans. And Adam and Eve were no longer given the same access to God who exists completely in another realm. 
And they were no longer given access to the kingdom of God in the same way. And, and the beauty that exists when heaven and earth overlap. So when Moses built this tabernacle that we read about today in the wilderness, and later when Solomon builds a temple, and then when they rebuild the temple later, there's always this, this place where, where heaven and earth sort of overlap in one space. And it's the temple. It's this place where we can go and, and encounter God, where heaven and earth touch in one little spot. Now, it's always supposed to be the temple where the presence of God can come down. There's even stories from when they built the, rebuilt the temple in, in Ezra and they blessed it. The presence of God came down so strong, the priests couldn't even stay in the temple. That overlap was too much where, where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of earth clashed. So when people firmly stuck on earth wanted to visit and engage with God, they, they went to this temple that served as a go-between, an overlap. And this is how the Old Testament functioned, except when it comes with limitations, because the majority of life is spent outside of the temple. And so you spend the majority of your life outside the, the, the connection, the interaction, the the overlap with God. And you could come to the temple, but you didn't live there. And when Jesus shows up, everything begins to change. The book of Matthew records Jesus being baptized and then spending 40 days in the wilderness. And immediately when he came out of the wilderness, the very first thing it records Jesus saying, it says, from then on Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven. So something has now changed. The, the kingdom of heaven doesn't just overlap in this place we call the temple. It now overlaps in a person we call Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is now interacting with the kingdom of earth. It was like Jesus, in Jesus, some sort of kingdom of heaven was breaking out into the earth realm. So later, John writes about Jesus' kind of Conflict with the temple leaders when he's in the temple and he's turning over tables and they have this kind of shouting match. Jesus says, tear down this temple and in three days I'll build it up again. And the people freaked out because they were like, it took us 46 years to build this thing. How in the world are you going to build a temple in three days? And later, once he had had time to consider it, John writes, but when Jesus said this temple, he was speaking of his own body. That the temple, the interaction between heaven and earth is now in a person named Jesus. So it's it's almost like this overlap between heaven and earth happens in one person. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls on the church, and, and the place where the kingdom of God intersects with the kingdom of earth is no longer a building, it's no longer a single person, it's now a people. It's now a people, and everything changes. In fact, Paul uses this exact same language when he picks up on this fixed spiritual reality of a temple being the place where heaven and earth bump into each other. When he speaks it to an entire church, he says, don't you know that, that you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That we're the temple, that the church becomes this place where heaven and earth meet. And in their midst, Jesus said, where two or three gather, I'm there with you. That's temple language. He said, when, when, when you guys meet together, heaven and earth are connected, and I'm, I'm there. And my favorite part of this picture of the relationship between the kingdom of God and this fallen earth is that we can find our mission in that. In this picture we have. Because as we wait for Jesus, we hope that more and more 
and more of God's kingdom comes to earth. Knowing that we'll never complete the job, but our goal is to, when we say your kingdom come, your will be done, we're, we're hoping to create more overlap. When we read Revelation 22, we know that there will come a day when that will happen. One of my favorite things about the passage we read today about this table, did you notice all the almonds and buds and blossoms that they had to make? That's, that's garden language. When they started, when, when heaven and earth overlapped, it was in a garden. It was with fruitfulness and flourishing. And so when God said, when you build this table that's the center of this place where, where heaven and earth meet, I want it to be fruitful. I want, to, I want it to create the image of, of that time when we, was, when we were together, when everything was, was interlocked. The awesome part uh, is is that we, we find our mission in that. When we talk about the Holy Spirit filling us, it's not just that the Holy Spirit needed a place to crash. And so it happens in us. This temple is a metaphor for, for heaven and earth colliding. We are where heaven and earth meets. And don't you feel like that? Don't you feel like some days you're, you're a pretty decent ambassador for the kingdom of God? And then that same day you fall flat on your face and you're like 100% earth? Don't you feel like that contradiction? Like your stuff? Brendan Manning said it best. He's one of my favorite authors. He said it like this. When I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and I'm suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for fear. <laughs> so when we look back at this morning's passage, Moses is building this, the very first intersection since the Garden of Eden between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humans where we choose good and evil. The tabernacle in the wilderness is this first space where heaven and earth collide. It's the prototype for what will be the future church. And what I love about this first intersection is how specific and purposeful God is with his instructions. I love that final line of this morning's passage. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here in the mountain. I started out by saying this was more of a blueprint than a moral text. When you think about the fact that this is the interaction, the, the intersection between God and man, a place where heaven and earth will touch just a little bit, you can see why this passage was taken so seriously. I've always loved the weight of these types of passages, but about a year and a half ago when we were finishing up the remodel on this building, it kind of came to light, to life for me like never before. As we were getting ready to move into the space, I decided that I was going to build our communion table. We looked at several. I decided I wanted to build one. From a picture that I saw in the book of Satan, or what most people call it, Pinterest, um, <laughs> I, had, I had seen this... I'd seen this picture of a table that looked really similar to our back wall. Uh, my wife kind of had the idea for our back wall. Um, and a lot of us contributed to it. Um, incidentally, all the wood on this wall was the leftover scraps from the, from the remodel project we did on this building. Um, we saved them in, in a huge pile, and toward the end, um, I ran them through a table saw, ripped them into various widths, and one Saturday we all came up with a bunch of people 
bunch of kids, and we put out plastic, we gave everybody a different color stain and rags, and kids just sat around breathing fumes. And, uh, and we, we all, we stained all the wood together, and then we assembled it like a tile wall. We just, we stuck it off on the wall. And, uh, um, so in the Destroyer of Marriages, uh, Pinterest, I saw um, this table that looked like it would match our wall. And uh, it was built out of two by fours. And so my plan was to assemble a table and, and then sand the heck out of it, get it nice and smooth, and I got a big bell sander and maybe putty up some of the imperfections and, and stain it to match. But while I was assembling the table, uh, right out front there, I kid you not, it was like God was, was preaching that week's sermon to me. And, uh, and it felt like that line, make sure you do everything the way I tell you to do it. Um, and honestly, it was the, the closest thing I've ever come to, to understanding that verse. Be sure you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you on the mountain. First, there's a bunch of rough spots. My original plan was to sand these out. Get rid of these completely. I was going to smooth them over. And then it was like God spoke to me as I was making the table. But aren't the people that are going to gather around this table a little rough? I mean, some of these boards are still rough enough that you can get a splinter off of them if you're not careful. But aren't we like that? I'd love to tell you that being part of a church, being part of a good Christian church, means that you're 100% safe and you'll never get hurt. That's just not how it works. We're not plastic. We're not smooth. We are even nicely sanded maple. We're rough and jagged. And sometimes, no matter how hard we try to show love, we hurt each other. We're clumsy and awkward with our love. Years ago, we were sitting at our dining room table, and a friend of mine named Josh was eating dinner with us. And Rebecca, um, the one who said for it for so long, was uh, staring at Josh with unmistakable admiration. And uh, she just looked dreamy. And Josh had kind of noticed, and she was just, just looking at this cute TV. And after several minutes, in the sweetest voice you've ever heard, she goes, Josh, you're fat. Just like my dad. <laughs> and like Rebecca, we can be clumsy with our love. A huge part of our common life together as a church is spent pulling splinters. When we mess up, we say, I'm sorry, and we, and we do our best, but... But we're not smooth. Peter spent three years with Jesus, and my favorite thing is that toward, the, toward the end of this time, after yeah, three years with the Son of God, like if anything could polish you and sand you and make you smooth, you think it'd be that. And there's this point toward the end where he confesses his faith, and it's such a, a huge moment that, that Jesus commends him and, like, dude, you nailed it. You didn't get this from people. Only God can reveal this to you. So, I mean, can you imagine something God like, like celebrating something that you said? And two seconds later, I'm sure still riding the crest of that praise, Peter declares his intention to protect Jesus from death, even if he has to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That certainly doesn't come from God. Right? Even after three years, Peter still blurted out stupid stuff. He was still jagged and rough. And I get that. 
Because I say some brilliant things. <laughs> and I think I do, and you do. Like, we all have those moments where we say the right thing at the right time, and you're almost like, okay, I don't think that was me, because that was awesome. <laughs> Every once in a while, our mouths produce the right thing. It's smooth, it's polished, it's, it's finished. And then two seconds later, we say some of the stupidest stuff. And we realize how far from furniture lumber we really are. I look at this picture and I see me jagged and rough and unfinished. I also found this. I was originally going to sand this off. This mark means that this is structural lumber. Sturdy enough to be hidden in the bones of the house, but not really worthy of finish work. This is not trim lumber. This is not furniture lumber. Someone looked at this piece of wood and put a quick stamp on it. Tried to dictate its future. You'll always be plate lumber. Not good enough for much more than that. Have you ever felt like that? Like, like you're struggling to overcome the labels that someone else put on you? Like someone else never thought you would amount to much and you were the weight of that stamp on you. All the disciples Jesus chose fit that category, except for maybe John. Some people think John might have been a trained disciple. In Israel in the first century, all kids went to school at the synagogue. And the best and the brightest were invited to continue school. And those that didn't really cut the mustard were sent home to work the family business. Like they were stamped framing lumber. The best kids went on, and after a while, there was another cut, and the best and the brightest were asked to enter the final phase of school. The rest were stamped and sent home. Not good enough. Finally, for that batch of elite, some were chosen by a rabbi to be a disciple. A rabbi would come and touch them and say, Follow me. The rest were stamped and sent home. <laughs> So when Jesus chooses his disciples from fishermen and from tax collectors and from ordinary people, he was building a church out of stamped lumber. People who've been told they didn't measure up. Somebody else has said, you'll never do this. That's not what you're made for. I was planning to use some wood filler to cover these spots up. That's bark. That's a remnant of when this structural 2x4 was a tree. It was cut, it was cross-cut, it was planted, it was sanded, but a little bit of that old life still hung around. Anyone here feel like that? Like you've grown and you've matured, but as, as disciplined as you've tried to be, there's still some bark. Donnelly, a teacher, has said, I love Jesus, but oh man, my mouth. Some days I feel more like tree than two by four. And Paul was like this. He got saved. Paul was, uh, before he got saved, he was in prison and he was imprisoning and killing Christians. He persecuted Christ's followers. He was a, a Pharisee who lived in a world where your worth was defined by bragging rights and zeal. And when he became a Christ follower, his entire world was turned upside down, but he still carried the reputation. He still carried some of that bark from his previous life. And he still gave in to some bragging and scorekeeping from time to time. As changed as Paul was, the old Paul still snuck in every once in a while. Anybody relate to that? Anybody still got some bark? 
the one part of the table that did get picked off over the last year and a half was the price tags. Home Depot staples them in at the end of the wood. I think the kids have picked them all up. And I wanted to leave them because they showed how cheap this lumber was. One's a little expensive right now, but when we bought these two before, they were a couple bucks a piece. This is low-end stuff. And the gospel writers go to great length to, to repeatedly tell us how Jesus talked to the cheap folks. Tax collectors and prostitutes. People in that day went to great lengths to reach the ordinary people. The moms and dads, the workers, you know, the normal people. And they showed no energy for this, this class of society that was deemed too cheap. And those are the people Jesus reached out to. No one talked to tax collectors. No one talked to prostitutes except Jesus. There's a story where a woman comes and she's worshiping at Jesus' feet and she's pouring out her life savings to anoint him. And a Pharisee in the room is like, if he knew what kind of woman that was, he'd never let her do that. That was the difference between Jesus and everybody else. Jesus liked Jesus. In fact, our table is full of that. Along with the rough boards and the stamped lumber and the bark. And as I built this table to match our, our wall, I realized that I would be preaching every week in front of leftovers. Literally trash. If my wife hadn't seen a picture in Pinterest, I ran out of cute epithets. Every board in that wall would have been thrown away. But I thought about that banquet table that Jesus talked about. I thought about Mephibosheth's brokenness sitting underneath David's table. And Paul yelling at the Corinthians for excluding the have-nots from the table, and I decided, how dare I take a sander to this table? In the Old Testament, God told the people of Israel, if you ever do build me a temple, use stones, don't use bricks. Bricks are cookie cutter, everyone's the same. Don't do that. Use jagged stones that take some time to fit together and need some work. Lumpy and hard to manage, like people. And I believe that God wants to build his church the same way. In fact, Peter put it pretty blunt in, in 1 Peter 2.5. He said, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. We are that temple, that place where heaven and earth collide. So whatever metaphor works for you, whether it's stones building a temple or cheap splintery framing lumber composing a communion table, bark and all, or an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. This is us. This is what it means to be Open Table Community Church. So how do we respond to this? Normally I send you home with something to think about or something to pray about or some kind of spiritual challenge, but this week's a little different. Uh, we've spent the past month talking about what it means to be Open Table Community Church. And that wasn't for no reason. There is a hook I've been selling you. Um, here comes the bait and switch. Uh, this is the setup. <laughs> uh, we're getting ready to pass an offering plate. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, this is not enough. This is, this is not enough money. You guys are amazing. You do an incredible job of taking care of this. Uh, but what we are asking for is help. Um, we did this last year. 
We put out sign-up sheets to try and get some volunteers to jump in and help us um, run things. And, and we had an amazing turnout. A bunch of people signed up. It was awesome. And then COVID hit and we really didn't get to use anybody. Um, and we went back to doing church at home. And then when it was time to get the doors open again, you know, uh, uh, there was no way to know who was going to be here any given week. And things were crazy. And so my kids and a few uh, helpers agreed to work really hard in the basement to keep everything running and we, we fought to get the church doors open um, and as we uh, grow a little more stable uh, we're back to needing help um, to keep everything running smoothly so um, so you now know what Open Table is all about this is us and if you um, uh, if, if you're okay if you, if you agree with the idea of us being a church for ragamuffins um, who really want to pursue Jesus and do life together, and that feels like um, you, then we invite you to come and help us. Um, if you are on board with that, please consider um, jumping in. So I've got tables up here, and what I would love to do for the next few minutes um, is to come and look over the places we need help. And if you uh, see anything and you're like, yeah, that's me, I can do that, I'd love to be a part of that, jot your name down and someone will reach out to you and we'll find a way to get you plugged in. I'm going to give you guys a few minutes, we got time, uh, maybe 10 minutes to do that, and then I will call you back together for communion and the kids are going to sing with us for one more song. So take a few minutes, and, uh, and if you're online and you're joining us, um, don't put it in the comments because that disappears once we stop going live. Reach out to me, email me, text me, say, hey, I'm not there this week, but I am interested in getting plugged in, and uh, we'll reach out to you and make sure um, uh, you know what's going on. And we'll have these out for a couple weeks, so if you're generally here and you're joining online this week, um, and you know you'll be here next week, these will be out for you to be able to sign up. So take a few minutes, press and put some music on for us, and uh, let us know if there's anything you can help us with.